everybody once more welcome. My name is Tim Harris, pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church. All of you in the cafe this morning, we love you. Welcome to worship. If you're joining us by way of audio or video podcast, thank you for finding us. And I uh, pray that you will uh, also enter into this moment of, of worship with us. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. As, uh, as you know, we're continuing a message series entitled CrossFit. We're talking about spiritual disciplines. And with that, let me share a verse with you from 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is the leading verse for the entire series. It ties all these weeks together. This is what the Word of God says. Train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Train yourself to be godly. I I love that. Uh, The word that Paul uses here for train literally is a word for which we get gymnasium. It's an athletic word and it's meant to call to mind the kind of extreme exertion that some people that some people put into physical training that some people put into their workout at the gym or at yoga or wherever it is that you really uh, put it out there where you really begin to exert yourself to the point of perspiration or, or, or maybe uh, you know uh, absolute, you know, death. I, I don't know. Uh, some of you work pretty hard. Some of us don't work hard. But, but the point that Paul is making is that for those who really understand what physical training is, you need to put that kind of effort, that, that kind of exertion into your spiritual life, into godliness. Train yourself to be godly. Now, what this, of course, assumes is that godliness does not come natural for us. None of us are naturally godly. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. And all of the transformation is the spirit's work no question but it cannot happen without your participation and that participation is something that as i say is not automatic for most of us we have to learn to do this we have to learn to think like christ and learn to behave like christ and that learning takes the form of what paul calls training that brings us to uh, the topic of spiritual disciplines and that's what we're talking about now for these several weeks Here's a definition that Wade Harris gave us last week that I think is actually really fantastic. Spiritual disciplines are biblical practices. We're not talking about things that are not in the Bible. And in this series in particular, we're not talking about things that either Jesus did not practice or something that Jesus taught. So we're looking to Jesus as our model for training in godliness. These are biblical practices that when done regularly... You got to do them regularly. In other words, not just, you know, once or twice a year, you're dusting the house and you find the Bible underneath, you know, the whatever, and you pick it up and read a verse. And and then for the rest of the year, you say, yeah, I've been reading in the book of Jeremiah. No, you read a verse when the Bible fell open. That's not what we're talking about here. This is training. This is something you're trying to do consistently. You do it regularly. Spiritual disciplines are biblical practices that when done regularly allow us to be with Jesus and become like Jesus, transforming us by the power and beauty of the gospel. If you're going to grow in Christ, you need to be with Jesus and you need to become like Jesus. And this will not happen automatically. It's really something of a dramatic change that we're looking for in our lives. But as I've said, big change doesn't come to us by attempting big change. We do better when we uh, try for little change over time, but little change over time will lead us to big change. We will Uh, by the power of the Spirit, become like Jesus uh, when we allow ourselves to uh, grow day by day. That brings us to Luke chapter 4 today. Look at this passage with me. Why don't you go ahead and stand out of reverence for God's Word today. Stand to your feet. Let's read God's Word together. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 16. Now, this passage 
falls directly, directly after what Wade talked about last week at the temptation of Jesus. This is exactly what happens next. And I love it. Luke chapter four, verse 16. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now turn over to verse 42. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. But he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. So he continued to travel around preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. Take your seat. I once heard a very wise school teacher who was giving advice to a young man training in ministry. And it was actually an amazing moment. And this is what the school teacher said. She said, among other things, but she said to the young man, you must learn to define yourself for yourself or others will define you for you. That's how school teachers talk, y'all. You must... You must define yourself for yourself, define yourself. In other words, you have to tell people who you are, because if you don't, they will tell you who you are and they will almost always be wrong. You understand? So you define yourself for yourself or others will define you for you. This is what Jesus is doing in this passage. Now, as Wade walked us through the the scripture last week, Jesus went out into the wilderness after his baptism, after the thundering voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We know who Jesus is and Jesus knows who Jesus is. And as it turns out, the devil knows who Jesus is. And after the baptism and after the temptation in the wilderness, then Jesus does an amazing thing next. He goes home. He goes to his boyhood home and goes to the synagogue, as the scripture says, interestingly, uh, as was usual for him. He went as usual to the synagogue. So Jesus goes back to the place where everybody knows him, or at least they think they know him. By the end of his first sermon, they want to kill him. Read it. They, they, they think they know who he is. They think he's Joseph's son, the carpenter's son. And, and, and if you think you know that he's Joseph's son, you really only know the tiniest bit of who Jesus is. You don't really know who Jesus is if all you know is he's Joseph's son, the carpenter's son. You see, they think they know, but they don't know. So on this day, Jesus steps into the pulpit. He takes the word of God and he lets them know who he is. He defines himself for himself. And what does he use to do that? How does he explain to them so that they can understand completely who he is? He uses the word of God. And these are the words he uses. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news. The gospel. Jesus defines himself in terms of the gospel. The gospel is a matter of identity for Jesus. It defines who he is. 
So Jesus doesn't step into the synagogue and say, y'all remember me, you know, I'm Mary's son and, and Joseph's son and grandma's over there. Y'all, well, y'all know me. He doesn't do that at all. He steps into the pulpit, takes the word of God and says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. That's who he is. No matter what else they think they know about him, if they don't understand the good news, they're not going to understand who he is. It's a matter of his identity. You can't know him until you understand his mission. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Fivefold mission there. This is the preview of everything that's going to follow. Jesus is going to fulfill these words. Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the gospel. So the gospel explains everything about who he, he, who he is and everything about what he does. Now, I want to talk today about evangelism. I want to talk to you about our obligation to talk to others about Jesus. And, and this is where we start. Jesus was an evangelist. Jesus is an evangelist. Jesus doesn't just proclaim good news. Jesus is the good news. He is the gospel. And if you're going to follow him, then understand that this gospel, which identifies who Jesus is, that same gospel must identify who you are. For you, it's also a matter of identity. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, the life you live is Jesus's life. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the gospel, y'all. And Paul says, there's no way to understand the life you live without reference to the gospel. There is no way to explain who you are and what you do without referencing who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. Now, understand how I said this, and I struggled when I was putting this together because I was thinking, there's no way to explain who you are and what you do because the, the contradiction is a, a lot of us in this room and a lot of us in the sound of my voice, we say we are followers of Jesus, but it's entirely possible for most of us to explain who we are and talk about what we do and never say the name of Jesus. Now, this is a problem. It's a problem that those of us who take Jesus' name on Sunday do not continue to take his name on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. This is a problem. It is a very bad sign for your Christian identity. The very fact that you can follow in Jesus' steps and yet be so far removed from the gospel that he is. The gospel that he proclaims, the gospel that he died for. You understand? If you're following him, this is your identity too. It is the gospel that explains to the world who you are. And if you can in any way tell your story and never have to at the same time tell the story of Jesus, then I'm very, very worried about your salvation. Honestly, I'm worried about your salvation. If they can tell the story of your life without any need to reference the story of Jesus's life, the gospel, there's something wrong with your life. Are you a Christian? Do you follow Jesus? Then it is the gospel who explains who you are. You're living a life of Christ living in you. 
absolutely no way to explain you, no way to explain your life. People would never understand what you do and why you do it if they don't know the gospel. And for Jesus, it's a matter of identity. But also look over in verse, uh, over in verse 43 where, where I finished. Crowd searched everywhere for Jesus. They finally found him. They begged him to stay. But Jesus replied, I, I must preach the good news. I, I, I must. The Greek word there where Jesus says must, it means must. I, I must. In, in grammar, we talk about this as an imperative. In other words, this is a command. It's an obligation. And Jesus understands the gospel as a matter of imperative for him. In other words, sharing it is something that he must do. It's an obligation. There's no choice here. This is his purpose. This is who he is. This is what he is. And there is no way that he's not going to do it. He is going to preach the gospel. Now, if the gospel were that kind of imperative for Jesus, and you say that Jesus lives in you, and you say that the life you live is Christ in you, then how can it be that you have so many options when it comes to sharing the gospel? Because you seem to think that you have the option not to do it. You seem to think that you can go through your entire Christian life and never really ever share the gospel with anybody. Where did you think you got this option? Honestly, exactly what do you think your life is for? If it's not for sharing Christ, why do you think you're in the world at all? It's an imperative. It's a command. It's your purpose. It's your reason for being. It is the life of Christ in you. There's nothing else. Christ is everything. The gospel is everything. Because if it's not everything, then it's not anything. You understand? It's, it, it's an imperative. It's, Jesus said, I must do it. I, I must do it. Apparently, you don't think you have to do it. But maybe it's not that. I, honestly, I've been in church my whole life. It, it's not that we think that we... It's not that we think that we don't have to do it. It's just that we really think of evangelism, talking about Jesus as something that's really awkward. And it is at first. If you're not in the habit, if this is not a practice for you, then I understand. I really do understand. It is awkward to talk about Jesus. It really is. It's awkward and it's difficult. I will grant you that. When you first start out, it is not natural for us. It may have been natural for Jesus. He is the living word. But, but for us, we have a lot to unlearn and learn before this can become natural for us. I, I, I grant you that. And that's why evangelism for you and me has to be a discipline. It doesn't come naturally, but it needs to come naturally. This needs to become second nature for you if you're going to fulfill the purposes of Christ for your own life. It has become second nature. And so when I have to learn something, when I need something to be automatic that is not automatic, that means I have to practice it over and over and over. Practice makes perfect. If not perfect, at least it makes it where you don't have to think about it. It just sort of happens. Everything you've ever learned to do, you learn this way. It comes by just practicing, by, by discipline. 
When you were a baby learning to, to walk, I'll never forget one Sunday in the lobby years ago, uh, one of our families had a little baby, and, uh, and, and, and they were in the lobby, and he was taking first steps at church, which is just awesome. And they're saying, come on, come on, come on. And he was like, you know, doing this and, and, and wobbling and trying to get to his parents. And they're saying, come on, come on, come on. I promise you, the very next week, one week later, same family was in the lobby going, hey, come back, come back, come back. Yeah, I promise. True story. Yeah. What happened? That kid got good fast, didn't he? He had places to go. He had people to see, you know? I mean, it starts out really kind of wobbly. It's really kind of awkward. Uh, You're a little weak on your feet. You could wobble. You could fall. You could look foolish. But I'm telling you, you just keep on stepping. And pretty soon, you know, it is smooth. It takes practice. Everything takes practice. Those of you ladies who cook so well, you weren't born cooking this well. You've cooked, you've learned to cook by cooking. It's amazing. It's just funny because I'll I'll make something. I like to cook, but I don't cook like you country women cook. I mean, these country ladies can just cook. I don't cook like that. You're like, I'll bring something to a potluck and one of those ladies will say, hey, how'd you make that? I think it was. It's macaroni and cheese. I opened a box. What are you talking about? You know? You know, I mean, these ladies don't make macaroni by hand. I don't know what they do, you know, churning butter. <laughs> but the point is, man, they cooked for years. You learn to cook by cooking. You learn to do most anything you learn to do by just doing it. Those of you who are awesome in sports, I am not in that category. I could have been awesome. I could have been the greatest. Problem is, I hated it. I hated it. Man, my parents put me in baseball. They, they wanted to have a boy, I guess, you know, so they put me in baseball. You know, I go to practice. I hated it. I hated it. When people throw a ball at me, I close my eyes. How is that not just smart? You know, if somebody throws something at you, you go, that's what I do. You know, so my coach recommended that I go home and practice with my dad. Well, guess what happens when you throw a ball at Don Harris? You know, we practice this stuff in our house, you know, come back the next week. Coach say, did you practice? I say, yeah, you know, but I didn't, I didn't, I I didn't. I, I only played baseball when I got to baseball and I was horrible. I was so bad. Y'all, they never even gave me a uniform. I know they were just praying I'd quit. Just hoping I'd quit, man. I was just that bad. I was horrible. PE, basketball, you know, we're trying to learn basketball and PE, and we do drills. Is there not anything more mind-numbingly horrible than just drills? Dribbling. You know, they make us dribble, you know? And I just dribble like this, man. It was horrible. And I was bad at it. I'm just dribbling, thinking, this is not basketball. This doesn't feel like basketball. It's not basketball, you know? So I never really practiced dribbling. Man, that's dumb. And then one day we're playing a game, like an actual game, basketball, Rich Pond School, seventh grade back in the day. I was awesome, I thought. So I hear, actually, my goal was just never to get near the ball. I just wanted to run around, you know. <laughs> but I don't ever want the ball. So it's a jump ball, whatever that really is. And Eric Gill, Sylvia Harris's son, was, was the guy that was about to, you know, jump and tip the ball. And so right for, at the moment, he did this to me. He went, and I'm thinking, 
He said, it's coming to me. I said, and he went like this. Something, oh, shoot, you know, Jesus. You know, so all of a sudden, the jump ball goes up. He's like, boom, tips it right to me. I got it. I got the ball. So I do this a couple of minutes. And then I put him in my arm and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. Ain't never tipped it to me again. I can tell you that much. Why did I do that? Why in that moment? I mean, in that moment when the ball came to me, I mean, everybody in the world knows what to do when they throw you a basketball except me. What do you do when they pass the ball to you? You got to start dribbling. You can't just tuck it under your arm and run. Now, if you could, the game would be over faster. I can offer you that. You know, put both those goals on the same end of the floor. We could make this thing a lot more efficient. It's the whole idea of dribbling. You know, I refuse to stand in one place and practice that because my goodness, my my goodness, you can grow old and die sitting in one place bouncing a ball against the floor. But the point is, that's a skill. That's a basic skill you need to be successful in basketball. And it turns out there are others too, and I have none of them. None of them. However, if I'd have been willing to stand there and learn to dribble, I mean, you just got to learn and any of us could learn it. I mean, I'm a doofus. I'm not a total doofus. I could practice that. I could get better. I could get to the point where dribbling wouldn't be something I I have to think. Bounce, 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 bounce. Because that's what I have to do. Bounce, 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 bounce. You know, I have to think about every single bounce. but, But the longer you do it, it becomes automatic. You can dribble, you can, you can carry the ball, you can shoot. I mean, you can do this and you don't have to think about it. I have to think about it and that's why I don't play. It's no fun. It's awkward. I look foolish. So I avoid it. And that brings us back around to evangelism. The thing about basketball is I don't really have to play basketball. It's not in my identity. I'm not a basketball player. I'm, I'm proudly not a sports guy. And there's no imperative that says I have to be a basketball player. I have an option here. But you don't have an option when it comes to the gospel. This is something that you must learn to practice. It's something that you must learn to do because it is your identity. You do belong to Christ. Christ is the gospel. You have to learn to talk about him. You must. You have any options here. So you've got to practice. Something you have to make yourself do. It's going to have to be something that you set goals toward, something that you learn some of the basic skills so that you can do this, so that it becomes a little more automatic. It will not always be frightening once you've done it a few times. It will not always be intimidating. You won't always feel so awkward and foolish. But you're going to have to practice. You simply got to practice. We have to practice evangelism regularly and deliberately, although it's hard. Until it becomes automatic and instinctive. With time, if you practice, become a little more automatic. You wouldn't have to work so hard. You wouldn't have to think so hard. It wouldn't even be the biggest part of your week. It would just simply be your way of being in the world. Evangelism is our way of being in the world. It's not some trick we do or something reserved for preachers, for Billy Graham and and, and particularly spectacular saints. This is our way of being in the world. We are supposed to go into the world and preach the gospel. 
Maybe that's the word that gets you. Preach. When you picture yourself sharing the gospel, what exactly do you picture? What do you picture? Some of you picture like a, like a preacher on a, on a stage, you know, going through the word and quoting verses off the top of his head, you know, and you're thinking, I can't do that. You think that evangelism looks and sounds like a preacher on a stage, and, and, and I think you're wrong. Billy Graham said that he believed that mass evangelism was not the most effective means to share the gospel. Billy Graham, the greatest mass evangelist, by mass I mean he would bring in thousands and thousands of people and he would preach, preach, preach in a giant, giant stadium, stadium, stadium. It was amazing, amazing, amazing. <laughs> to have an invitation at the end and people just flock down the aisles and hundreds, thousands, millions of people perhaps now say that they came to Jesus because of Billy Graham. And that's what you're picturing Somehow, you know, stepping up on a table at South Warren High School and preaching the gospel of Jesus, 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 you know, across the cafeteria. Is that what you're thinking? But because maybe, maybe our problem is we hesitate to talk about Jesus because we believe it's too difficult and we will fail. We have this, this giant picture of what it must be. And our, and our picture of evangelism is something way beyond what most of us could accomplish. Billy Graham said, I do not believe that mass evangelism is the most effective means of winning people to Christ. But it is what God has called me to do, and I've tried to, been, tried to be faithful to it. Billy Graham said, the most effective means of sharing Jesus is simply when one friend talks to his friend about Jesus. It doesn't look like a preacher on a stage. It doesn't sound like a preacher on a stage. It looks and sounds more like one friend talking to their friend. Growing up in church, growing up in a Baptist church, I was, you know, we did evangelism training all of the time. And, and in every single instance, you know, we, we sort of were trained to bring that person to the point where they're willing to pray a prayer and, it was always supposed to end somehow with, with that person praying a prayer to receive Christ. And then, you know, you bring them to church with you the next Sunday, and they'd walk the aisle and get baptized. And, and success somehow always was sort of defined as that. That, that. that if you do this well and you do this right, that person, you know, in that, in that one encounter will make a decision. They'll pray. They'll receive Christ. And you get a jewel in your crown. That's what they told me back in the day. And I will say this, it is beautiful when you're able to lead a person to Christ in that way. It really is. And, and once you experience that, you'll want to do it for the rest of your life. I can tell you that. Once you have prayed with someone, heard them pray, and received Christ, at that point, you'll want to do this forever. A lot of you have never had that joy. And because you've never had that joy, or because you really can't imagine really getting them to that point, you don't try. Let's be honest, you don't try because you really don't know, you know, how to do all of that. And, and, and it's really, really difficult. You know, the bottom line is you're not necessarily responsible for how they respond because you don't get to make that choice for them. And so if we define evangelism in such a way where you're a failure, if they don't say yes and pray and receive Jesus, then that we've set you up for failure because I'm telling you, most people don't just pray and receive Jesus the first time they hear the gospel. It doesn't really work that way. Not with everybody anyway. So, so let me just take a moment and help you understand how, how actual evangelism works in the world. 
for most people, it's more of a process. There are steps along the way and stages along the way when they come to Jesus. And your job is to move them one step closer to Jesus. You, you do your part. You, you share Jesus. You talk about Jesus. You do everything you know how to do. But honestly, your job is just to try to move them one step closer. One step closer. You just try to move them a little further down the road because they're going to come to Jesus one day, but you never know what day that is. It's, that's why I love the Gideons. The Gideons just pass out scripture. And they hear the story sometimes, the stories come back later about what happened, but honestly, that Gideon just does his job, and that's just put the Word of God in their hand. You know, Paul talks about it this way. Let me take you to Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In the church at Corinth, people are arguing about who's the most important pastor, who's your favorite pastor, what pastor do you love? And Paul just sort of cuts that here by explaining to the people how it all works. And I love this. He says, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news, the gospel. All right, so listen. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. So Paul's talking about how the gospel uh, is operating in Corinth. And Paul understands it's something of a group effort. Paul said, I did part of it. Apollos did part of it too. But it's just process. It's more like what happens when a seed gets planted and then the seed grows. Seeds don't typically sprout overnight. It, it takes time. And evangelism typically takes time. Now, there are amazing moments when you may share Christ and that person is ripe, that person is ready, and that person will respond. And that is a glorious moment. You're going to live for those moments. But do not neglect all of the other moments when, for all you know, you're planting the seed for the very first time. Sometimes you say the name of Jesus and that person's never heard the name of Jesus. You just planted a seed. Sometimes you say something about Jesus or you say something about your love for Christ or his love for you. And that's the first time this person's ever met a genuine Christian who loves Christ. It's not a matter of just going to church like a hypocrite or following rules. They see something genuine in you and it just changes, it changes their idea of Christians just a little bit. You've just watered the seed. And then a person at work, someone is struggling, they, they really need help, they, they're beginning to ask really serious, deep questions about faith, about their life, about what it all means. And on that particular day, you're able just to share a little something of what you know about Jesus and the difference he makes in your life when times are tough. And you water that seed again. Do you understand? This is how Paul explains it. It's a seed that gets planted by somebody and somebody else comes by and waters and maybe multiple people come by and water. But Paul says, all that, that doesn't matter. It's all God's work. It's God who's making the seeds grow. You just do your part. You do your part. Does that make sense? It is wonderful. I'm not saying you don't try to lead people to Christ, try to take them the whole way. I'm just saying not everybody takes that journey in one single step. Your responsibility day after day after day in all the places you go is just to help those people in your path take another step today toward Jesus. Just help them take another step. I know it sounds hard. For some of you, it sounds like more than you can do. I promise you, it's not more than you can do. 
I mean, if you're walking the path with Jesus at all, if you've even taken one step, then you should know how to tell somebody how to at least take the step you've taken. You can at least bring them as far as you've come. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, talking about Jesus, telling others about Jesus, this isn't going to be something that you're going to not do. Because the gospel's everything. The good news of, of Jesus, it's, it's, it's everything. How can you know how people could escape hell and go to heaven? How can you know that and have no desire to tell it? I mean, you see people in the grip of addiction and you know the power that would set them free. How much do you have to not care about people to never be willing to suggest that Jesus could make a difference in their lives? So many people in this world so confused, so so bound to violence and hatred. Either you're going to follow Jesus, either you're going to be like Jesus, or, or you're not. But if you choose not to follow Jesus and not to be like Jesus, then please, 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 don't think of yourself as a Christian. Evangelism is who we are. It is an imperative. It is what we must do. If it's hard at first, it just means we need to practice. Pray with me. Lord, we have members of our family that are so far away from you, so far away from believing. Lord, there are neighbors in our community that are so far away from you, Lord God. If they were to see a Bible, they wouldn't know which end was up with it. They wouldn't know Genesis from Revelation, Lord. They just don't know. And because they don't know, Lord, they live like they don't know, Lord. They live like they don't understand what life is about because they truly don't know what life is about. They continue, Lord, to live destructive lives of loneliness and boredom sin. And yet we gather in this church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Lord, we have all of the answers. We have all of the power. We have everything that the world needs, Lord, and we keep it to ourselves. This is not right. Teach us, Jesus, what it means to follow you, what it means to know your power, what it means to know salvation. Help us, Lord. Never to be comfortable keeping it all to ourselves. Lord Jesus, you came to seek and save the lost, and you found us. Now, Lord, help us to go. Help others find you. Help us, Lord, to practice until evangelism, Lord, simply becomes the air we breathe. We pray these things in Jesus' name.